We've been working our way through this amazing letter known as the Philippians Love around the world and throughout history by so many Christians. And as we unpack this scripture today, I was trying to think of how to begin our time together. And during this week, I was thinking about the Amazon series Rings of Power. I don't know if you've watched it. If you are uh, a Lord of the Rings devotee, you probably have checked into it and it's been mixed reviews, but I personally loved it. And this really tells the backstory of Galadriel, who's later one of the elvish queens. But this story picks up where she is on the hunt for evil and the power of Sauron that murdered her brother. And as they've been searching for it, they can't find the origin of it, but it explodes in a massive way, wiping out villages. And during this um, time of thinking about what has happened, Galadriel speaking to a young man named Theo, who thinks that he has somehow contributed to this. And this is what she said to him. Do not take the burden of this day upon your shoulders, Theo. You may find it difficult to put down again. But, he asked, how am I to let it go? And she says, there are powers beyond darkness at work in this world. Perhaps on days such as this, we have little choice but to trust in their designs and surrender our own. When she said that, I remember just pausing and looking at my family and just saying, wow. That's a statement of trust, that there are powers at work beyond darkness in this world. And sometimes the only choice we have is to trust in those designs. But then Theo objects, my home is gone. Where is the design in that? And Galadriel says, I cannot yet see it. Again, an amazing statement. Not that there's no design at all, and maybe Theo is right, that all this chaos, but rather a confident statement that it is there, even if we cannot yet see it. Well, as we pick up this letter from the Apostle Paul, he has been in prison for quite some time. And I wonder if this ambassador for Jesus had to ask himself the question, where is the design in all of this? I thought I was going to be free to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet he finds himself year after year locked up awaiting trial. But I also know the Apostle Paul, as a man who was devoted to Judaism, was trained in the scriptures. In the opening book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, there's this wonderful story of Joseph, who was the youngest of a number of brothers, and through a series of events, they sold him into slavery. And through powers that are at work in this world, he rose to prominence in Egypt, becoming second in command. And when a great famine broke out upon the land, he organized the food and the harvest in such a way that they could make it through there. And he ended up saving his brothers. And when his brothers realized who he was, they had this encounter. And he told them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There are those times in our life when perhaps we can look back and didn't know what was going on during this time of struggle and questioning. But we had to hold on to the faith that there are powers at work beyond darkness in our life. And sometimes we can look back and see the design. But other times we're stuck right in the middle of it. And we ask ourselves the question, what in the world is God doing? I cannot see it. We're going to call our study today, God is working all things for good. And we're going to use this example of Paul in prison and how he has seen the gospel at work, even in the midst of his imprisonment. And he's going to tell us essentially that even though he is chained as an ambassador for Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is not chained at all. 
So as we get ready to dig into this passage together, let's join together in prayer and ask the Lord to work in our lives that which is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray together. Father, as we, as human beings living in this this crazy world, have times where we struggle with the powers of darkness that are at work, sometimes it is hard to believe that your power is at work even in the bad to bring about good purposes. And so help us as we consider this example from the Apostle Paul and weigh his words carefully as he wrote to the Philippians, encouraging them in the faith to believe these things. Help us to believe them as well, to apply it to our own lives. Give us insight and discernment as we unpack these scriptures and help us wrestle with what's going on here so that we may be further equipped to take our next step in following Jesus and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So there's really three surprises I want us to notice in this passage. And the very first surprise starts out like this. Paul, writing from prison, says to these Philippian believers living some 800 miles away, this church that he helped start, the first one in Europe, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. How is that possible, Paul? Well, let's just pause for a moment on that word gospel. He uses it some nine times in this letter. Paul was devoted to the gospel of Jesus, this message about the good news of the Savior who was crucified and is now risen and reigning. In fact, he believed in so much because it was the power of God for salvation. And so he says that everything that has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel. That word gospel, as you know, if you've been a part of Mercy Hill Church, is simply the word for good news in the ancient world. It was oftentimes used by kings or emperors as they sent apostles out proclaiming the message that a new king or emperor has risen to the throne, and there's great hope for everyone. But the way Paul uses it is there's great hope for everyone because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the gospel really is the good news about all that Jesus has done and his life, death, and resurrection to offer us both the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And so Paul says, I want you to know that everything that has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, I want us to pause and just take a a, a little historical detour and consider everything that happened to Paul. Actually, we can't consider everything because we don't have simply the time for it. But I want to take this detour because it is fascinating. I I did a deep dive into this this last week and learned things that I didn't know that were there. So you may know that in the book of Romans, Paul told these Christians living in Rome that he hoped to visit them one day. He wanted to actually make it to Spain eventually eventually. For him, that was the furthest he could go in the known world. And he wanted to take the gospel there. But he wanted to stop in the empire because there were Christians already living there and also because he wanted to proclaim the gospel in this, this most important city in the ancient world. So that's, that's what he wanted to do. This is what he'd been praying for. This is what he's been longing for. But first, he's going to go to Jerusalem because he's taken up collections from the churches in Macedonia to give to the Christians living in Jerusalem as they're experiencing a, a severe famine. And he made a stop in this town called Caesarea, not too far from Jerusalem. And the Christians there were begging him not to go there because he's going to end up arrested. And Paul said to them, What are you doing weeping and and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) 
even in spite of their warnings to not go to Jerusalem, this is not going to end up well, Paul says, I have to go, and I am ready, even if I have to lay down my life for Jesus. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and surprise, surprise, there's this great riot that breaks out. People are furious that he has been preaching about the gospel of Jesus to these Gentiles and having the audacity to say they don't have to become Jewish to become um, saved. And there's this great riot that breaks out, and it stirs up the whole city, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. His friends saw this coming, and maybe Paul saw this coming, but this wasn't the reception that he wanted. He wanted to bring help in the midst of this famine. And we're told that basically, well, let me just point this out. On the night immediately following this riot and his opportunity to speak at the, before the Sanhedrin, immediately following that night, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at Rome. Isn't that interesting? Here in this dark moment where Paul has his world turned upside down, Jesus comes to him and says, Take courage. Not only have you preached here in Jerusalem, but I'm going to send you to Rome. Well, he's under custody now. In fact, they, the Roman soldiers took him, and because it was so dangerous for him at Jerusalem, they sent an escort of 200 soldiers accompanied by 200 spearmen, and I think it was 70 um, horses to, to take him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where he was in prison there. And Felix, who was the Roman governor of Caesarea at the time, called him in to speak and to hear about what faith in Jesus meant. Now, this is interesting. Paul thought he was going to go and, and proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, and he did, but he had no idea that he was going to stand before kings and preach the gospel as well. Not long after that, actually about two years after that, uh, Felix died, and another Roman governor, Festus, uh, arose. And before Festus, Paul said, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And Festus said, Well, how about we just go back to Jerusalem and have your trial there? And Paul said he didn't want to go there because he knew there was an ambush set for him. And so he appeals to Caesar. Paul, as a Jew, was also a Roman citizen. And so he appeals to the highest judge in the land, in the Roman Empire, Caesar himself. Well, while he was there in Caesarea, King Agrippa came to town, and he wanted to hear what Paul had to say. And so Paul stood before Agrippa and said, basically, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the nations. And so here's Paul, thinking he was going to be speaking to the ordinary folks of Jerusalem, now speaking before the highest levels of power, both to Felix and Festus and now King Agrippa. And it's interesting because Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so it was decided that we should set sail. This is Luke speaking in the book of Acts. He's one of Paul's companions. It was decided that we should set sail for Italy. And they delivered Paul to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And Julius treated Paul kindly. So here's a centurion charged with getting the Apostle Paul, from Caesarea all the way to Rome. He's already spent two years now in prison in Caesarea, and now they've got to make this voyage over to Rome by sea in the middle of winter, and of course that doesn't go well. There's this shipwreck as they approach the island of Malta, and their ship falls apart, and they struggle and swim to shore in the freezing waters. 
that's part of what happened to Paul. And then we're told when he finally arrives at Rome that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So when Paul talks about all that has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel, he has quite the resume here of experiences and speaking before kings and shipwrecks and getting bit by snakes and all these different things that went into it. But what I want us to notice is that Paul has now spent the last four years in prison, maybe a little bit more, and now he's awaiting Caesar's decision. Will he be executed or will he be set free? By the way, do you know who the Caesar was at this moment in time? Only the most crazy psychopath in the ancient world named Nero. If you had never looked into the life of Nero, let me encourage you to do this. This man was crazy. He murdered his own mother. He had family members murdered. He dressed in all kinds of weird things and did all kinds of despicable things and was just... The, the more he reigned, he started when he was 16, but the, the more he reigned, the crazier he became. And many historians believe that he was the man who was behind the fires that were set in Rome. He had this dream to rebuild Rome bigger and greater. And these fires were set, and he blamed it on the Christians in Rome. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Nero blamed the fire that burned the city of Rome on July 18th. Uh, AD 64, on the Christians who were arrested, thrown to beasts, crucified, and being burned alive. There's persecution of Christians going on before this, but now it gets turned up to the max as they're thrown to beasts, as they're, as they're crucified. In fact, Nero, you may know, uh, lit Christians on fire on stakes for lighting his garden parties. That's how much of a psychopath he was. And so, there's just a quick timeline of all that has happened to Paul as we do this little historical detour from his expressing his desires to go all the way to Rome to taking a gift to Jerusalem and encountering the riot there and being arrested and spending two years in Caesarea to now spending two years in prison in Rome. And it's during this time when he's in Rome, he writes these words to the Philippians. By the way, we're not sure exactly how Paul's life ended. The book of Acts ends with those words I said just a few moments ago, that he was in prison preaching the gospel to whoever would come to him. And the historical record kind of goes cold there. But it's not unreasonable to think that that great persecution of the Christians, Paul was somehow executed. Nero probably didn't care. Well, we know he didn't care about justice. But when he was delighted to blame the fires that burned Rome on the Christians, that may have been when Paul and also Peter met their end. And so... Back from a historical detour, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And you wouldn't be thought too poorly if you were to say to yourself, Paul, you are crazy. If you had spent the last four years free preaching the gospel to whoever you wanted to, that would have greatly served to advance the cause of the gospel. But you are greatly restricted. Yes, people can see you in prison and you can talk to them, but how can you say that this is greatly and really served to advance the gospel? How can you see God at work bringing about good things? Well, he tells us in verse 13. He knows something that we don't know, and the Philippians didn't know. He says, This has really happened to serve the advance of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard 
and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is fascinating, my friends. The imperial guard was Caesar's own personal guard unit. It's composed of some 9,000 soldiers. And Paul tells us the entire imperial guard knows that he is in prison for Jesus. Now Paul had, we might say, the privilege of being chained to one of those, pris- one of those Roman guards 24 hours a day. They went in shifts of four to six hours, and he was in prison for two years. And how many did he get to speak to personally? It's just a guess. But they are talking and talking to one another about what this crazy man Paul is saying about some dead man who supposedly came back to life named Jesus. And so Paul says, look, this is really advanced, served to advance the gospel. Everyone in Nero's own guard knows about Jesus. A couple commentators invite us to kind of meditate on what's going on here. N.T. Wright in his commentary said, The soldiers were used, of course, to the gospel of Caesar, the supposed good news that a new emperor had taken the throne, bringing, so he claimed, peace and justice to the world. Now here was someone out of the blue announcing that there was a different gospel, that Jesus of Nazareth had taken the throne of the world and was summoning every man, woman, and child to bow the knee to him. These Roman guards knew that what he was saying about Jesus posed a rival to Caesar. Lynn Kohick in her commentary on the book of Philippians says, Imagine a Roman soldier's discussion with Paul and his subsequent astonishment when he hears Paul declare that his physical chains are not indicative of Caesar's hold on his life. Instead, those chains establish Christ's victory in spreading the gospel to all. Likely, some guards shook their head in disbelief and confident in the superior power of Caesar. Others laughed at Paul's fairy tale. But perhaps a few went away pondering, seeing something in Paul that they had not seen in a prisoner before. Paul would identify that something as Christ. Nero's own personal guards that guarded his safety and guarded the palace have heard the good news about Jesus. But not only that, Paul has this little phrase here, not only have they heard it, but all the rest have as well. Who are the rest? Some people say that everyone in Rome is talking about it, and that might be the case. But I wonder if Paul has another audience in mind there. There's this little nugget at the very end of the book of Philippians when he's giving his greetings. And he says, The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Do you hear what he's saying here? (laughs) Part of Caesar's, Nero's own inner circle have become Christians. And they are sending their greetings to the Philippians as well. Isn't that astounding? We don't know for sure, but Paul may have actually been able to preach the gospel to Nero himself. It appears from the next section that we're going to look at next week that he's awaiting the verdict which means that he would have spoken to Nero who would have heard his case. That's just mind-boggling to think of. Of course, Nero (laughs) didn't convert. He just couldn't continue on his psychopathy. Um, And so, but anyway, something interesting. But here's what I want you to get, my friends. Paul had wanted to go to Rome to preach the good news of Jesus in the heart of the empire, and God answered Paul's prayers beyond his wildest of dreams. (laughs) God is working all things for good. 
his imprisonment, going hungry, shipwrecks, everything has served for him to be able to speak the gospel to those in the highest places of power. Isn't that amazing? Some of Nero's household have even become convinced of the gospel of Jesus. That's a big surprise, isn't it? I connected all those dots this last week. I went to seminary, studied the scriptures, and I didn't get all those until I worked on it this week. Anyway, it's amazing. Surprise number two. Not only has the gospel been advanced in Paul's condition as those in the highest realms of power hear the gospel, but he says this in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Who's he talking about here? When he refers to brothers, a shorthand for talking about his brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are there in Rome, see Paul's imprisonment, and he says they are much more bold to speak the word with, without fear. There's a couple of translations. I always look at different translations, and I just want to put this verse up in a few different translations for you. One, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and, and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. Moreover, says the International Standard Version, moreover, because of my imprisonment, the Lord has caused most of the brothers to become confident to speak God's word more boldly and courageously than ever before. And someone says, wait a minute, that makes no sense whatever. How is that even possible? I mean, that would make sense if Paul got out of prison and he was free to preach the gospel. That would have lit me on fire. I would have said, oh, I don't have to pay for it with my life. This is amazing. We're free to preach the gospel in Rome. But Paul says, my imprisonment, they've seen that, and they've actually become more confident to speak the word. How is that possible? Don't they know that if they are too bold in preaching the gospel, that they could end up just like Paul? Strangely, seeing Paul in prison for the faith he believed and proclaimed has not, has not had a chilling effect on these Christians in Rome. Rather, they have become more confident and more bold to speak the word without fear. And Paul tells us why in verse 14. They are confident in the Lord. They're not confident in Paul's situation. They're not even confident that Paul might get out of prison. They are confident in the Lord. Why is that significant? Because these are people who've who become Christians because of the message about a crucified and risen Lord. God works in the most crazy of circumstances, not simply the good, but the, the bad and the ugly, to bring about his purposes for good. The Apostle Peter, standing up in Jerusalem 50 days after they crucified Jesus, this is the same Peter who, by the way, ran like a scared child when he was publicly identified as a follower of Jesus and denied Jesus three times. And now, just over a month later, he's standing at the very place where they crucified Jesus and said these words. Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. <laughs> but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why are these Christians confident in the Lord? Why are they speaking more boldly no matter what happens? Because they are confident in the Lord who works all things together for good, even if that meant they paid for it with the ultimate price. Later in the book of Acts, we're told 
the council, this is the Supreme Court of Israel, called in the apostles and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Are you kidding me? These people just got beaten for simply telling people that Jesus is Lord, that he offers salvation to all who turn to faith in him. And they're ordered by the Supreme Court of Israel not to open their mouth. And as they leave that place, nursing their wounds, this joy wells up within them because they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the Lord Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So when we read these words that most of the brothers and sisters here in Rome, having become confident in the Lord by Paul's imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear, it seems that Paul is telling this to the saints in this Roman colony of Philippi, both to encourage them to speak about Christ more fearlessly and, and with great courage. And if he's telling them that, how much more does it apply to, to people like us, followers of Jesus, who don't have to pay with our lives for teaching, teaching the gospel? So that's surprise number two. Verse one was, surprise of all surprises, the highest power, even, even Nero's inner family, are converting to Jesus. The second surprise is, in spite of Paul's imprisonment, the believers have become much more confident to preach the word about Christ. Here's the third surprise. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Isn't this strange? There are Christians preaching in Rome, being more bold in the Lord, but some of them have some wonky motives in doing it. These aren't false teachers. There are places, in fact, Paul's going to kind of go off on some false teachers later in this letter. These aren't false teachers going around saying you, you need Jesus plus this and that for salvation. These are Christians who are preaching about Jesus. And some of them preach out of love and goodwill, knowing that Paul has been in prison for the defense of the gospel, to make his defense before the highest realms of power. But others preach out of envy and rivalry, selfish ambition, thinking that they can afflict Paul in prison. Isn't that weird? These preachers of the gospel of Jesus have weird motives in preaching the gospel about Jesus. They think this is actually going to cause some distress for Paul if they're successful. I like the way that Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, put it. <laughs> he says, It's true that some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. But others do it with the best heart in the world. It's crazy. There's another place in the, in the book of Corinthians where um, there's these, these men in the city of Corinth going around preaching the gospel, and they had taken on the name the super apostles. <laughs> they were better than the original apostles probably because of their expertise and eloquence and rhetoric. And they're dogging on Paul because he can't speak as well as they. I mean, this is crazy. Christians are doing this. Of course, if you know Christians, anyway. Here's the surprise. What does Paul have to say? What then? What am, what am I to do with this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What's, what does it matter? There's some people out there preaching because they think it will cause me distress. What does that matter? 
I'm just glad they're opening their mouth about Jesus. <laughs> I can get behind them in that, and I can cheer them on and wish them success. You see, Paul, he's operating with this assumption that God is at work in all things for the good. So whether he's in prison or whether fellow Christians are taking pot shots at him, bizarre as that is, he can just rejoice because the gospel is advancing and he can get behind that. So let me summarize our study so far, friends. Since God is working all things for good, let's be emboldened to speak about Christ more and more. I think that's the point of the Spirit as Paul writes this, this passage to his friends living in the Roman colony of Philippi. Remember, it's a Roman colony. It's little Rome. Roman nationalism was off the charts there. They worshiped the emperor there. And Paul's letting them know what's happening in his situation and in the situation of the Christians in Rome. And he's saying to them, essentially, since God is working all things together for good, let's be emboldened to speak about Christ more and more. So, a couple points of application just to you today, my friends. The first one is this. Let's engage the mission of Jesus. Paul's encouraging these original Uh, recipients of his letter to engage the gospel of Jesus. They're already in partnership with Paul, helping him do what he needs to do. But he's writing to encourage them to take greater steps to become like those in Rome who are more and more courageous to speak about Christ. I have this graphic that I found up here, and let me just stop to ask the question. (laughs) As you think about your own life, what is your level of engagement in the mission of Jesus? Are you on that low end of engagement? kind of average, high, or off the charts. Friends, I don't know if we can be off the charts like Paul was. He did that full time, and he had a unique calling. But ordinary, average Christians, like those living in Rome and those living in Philippi, in spite of the difficulty of doing it in their situation, were talking about Jesus. How about us? Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, said this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, Paul says, that day we look forward to when Christ renews it all, it's already spilling over into the present. As God renews people to become followers of Jesus. New creation everywhere. And he says, God has done this because he's reconciled us to himself. But he's also given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, Paul says, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Of course, this applies on one level to Paul and the Apostles. But it applies on another level to ordinary, average Christians like you and me, like those living in Rome, like those living in little Rome, Philippi. So let me ask you the question. What would be your next step to become more engaged in the mission of Jesus? Maybe for some of you, it might be just getting down the actual content of the message of Jesus. Um, We have out on our table these little pamphlets called The Story, which basically just rehearses the gospel story. This is a great place to start. This one's a little booklet. We have another one, just a a two-page summary of it. Maybe for you, picking up one of these and reading it every day this week and, and getting the message of Jesus into you is a good way to start. 
Maybe for some of you, it might mean just saying, Lord, I'm scared to open my mouth about Jesus. But would you give me boldness to do so? And those spheres of influence where you've placed me, are there ways that I can creatively engage people in conversations about the things that matter most? Help me to see that. Help me to, to, to seize the moment when it's put before me. Maybe for some of us, it might mean just making a list of people we know who don't know Christ yet and really praying for them. I don't know what your next step might be, but for all of us, there ought to be something that we can do to, to ratchet that meter up a little bit to engage Christ. And, and, and this is us, my friends who know Jesus. God has died for us, reconciled us to himself in Christ. He's given us salvation. We become new creations in Christ. And yes, God can use all kinds of things. He can use stones to preach the gospel of Jesus, but he's chosen to use people like you and me. So the question is, is, is will we engage? It might cost us something. <laughs> but let's think about this. What's the worst case scenario that can happen if we dare to open our mouths and talk about the greatest human who has ever lived? It might be a loss of reputation, almost certainly. Maybe loss of income, loss of freedom, loss of life. Do you believe that God works all things together for good? Paul believed that. And that's why he was willing to risk it all. In fact, Jesus told his disciples at one point, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. <laughs> when the disciples heard that, I'm like, what are you talking about? That's pretty drastic. Yeah, I'm worried about those people who kill my body. But Jesus is like, well, if they kill your body, then what can they do to you? There's nothing more they can do if they've killed your body. They can't touch you at that point. We have this song that we sing here at Mercy Hill Church. I would sing it every week if, we could, if I could get away with it. All I have is Christ. It has this wonderful line. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be. My only boast is you. My friends, this is my daily prayer. Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Maybe that's our next step together in following Jesus Christ, is to dare to pray that prayer sincerely from the deepest part of our being. Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Even if that means loss of reputation, loss of income, loss of freedom, or even the loss of our lives. So that's the first point of application, my friends. Here's the second. Let's fortify our conviction that God works all things together for Christ's glory and our good. <laughs> we will never take that next step in opening our mouths about Christ and talking to him unless we believe that God works all things together for good. I'm using that phrase, of course, from Paul's letter to the Romans. Wonderful chapter 8 of that letter. He says this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Next breath, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? <laughs> or four years in imprisonment? Or shipwreck? Or countless beatings? Paul says, as it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No, in all these, uh, the two slides are the same thing. Oh, no, I got the wrong. I'm sorry, my friends. I'm getting ahead of myself here. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. God works all things together for our good, no matter how much we have to pay the price. I've shared this quote with some of you before. I absolutely love it. It's one of those quotes. I have a handful of quotes that are just life-defining for me. This comes from a man named Alan Redpath, and he says, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. Remember the opening of the message when we talked about Galadriel? Talking about there are powers that are work beyond darkness. We have to trust ourselves to that. She's talking about in Middle Earth there. And when Theo objected, she said, I cannot see it yet. Later in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the one that Tolkien wrote, not the creators of Amazon, there's this place where the Fellowship of the Ring has come and they encounter Galadriel, now one of the Elvish queens. And as parting gifts, as they go on their journey, she gives each of them a different gift for their purpose. And to, to Frodo, the ring bearer, she says this, For you, Frodo Baggins, I give you the light of Arendelle, our most beloved star. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. And if you know that story, Frodo, in that vial of, of the star of Arendelle, he used it in some of his most darkest of moments. I'm bringing this up, my friends. Because if we have the conviction that God works all things together for the good, that is our northern star. That is the thing that illuminates the darkness when we cannot see. In fact, in a few moments, we're going to sing the song that says, Though darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Now, how is it possible to rest on his unchanging grace? My friends, it's the conviction, as that song says, that Christ is Lord of all. That he is at work, bringing all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I end with this quote from the Heidelberg Catechism. You may not know what catechisms are, but these are just uh, uh, statements of faith, basically, in the form of a question-answer format that are used to instruct Christians in the faith. And in this... I've had this for in this first, uh, in this catechism, the very first question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And this is the answer. That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death. Not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. My friends, let that confidence be your star of Arendelle to light your darkest moments. And may you use that 
courageously to speak the gospel. Mercy Hill Church, may you know the light that illumines the darkness, that God in Christ is working all things for good. And so let's risk it all for the sake of the gospel.